Yes, hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code One Careers podcast. Today we are going to be back in the world of paramedicine, talking all things mentoring with Glenn Ryan. Glenn is a qualified advanced care paramedic and can be found under the Instagram handle Your Paramedic Mentor, providing really good advice to students, grads, and everyone else seeking some assistance. Today we're going to be talking through his career so far and some tips on how to set yourself up for success as a mentor or a mentee in the pre-hospital field. Now before we jump in, I'd really appreciate it if you could go and follow the show and leave a rating so we can help grow the podcast and really keep getting on some good, interesting guests to come on the show. Now as always, big shout out to our sponsor Police Fit. If you're looking for assistance in passing fitness tests for frontline services, or you're just chasing a coach who really understands the demands of shift work and balancing that with a good fitness plan, head over to the website in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's get stuck in today's episode. Mr. Glenn Ryan, your paramedic mentor, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for uh, yeah inviting me to come on. Awesome. So um, we're probably going to have a bit of a chat about mentoring, seeing as that's in uh, in the name of your game, um, and we'll just sort of yeah. roll through a bit of your history and sort of um, your life sort of prior to become a paramedic because you sort of did have that career before. Um, and then sort of your journey so far and into what you're doing now. Yeah, man. So happy to start off whenever you want, man. Yeah, so we'll go into your your former career before becoming a paramedic. Yeah, so I guess for me, um, I was a chippy uh, from young ages, uh, sort of that 15 through to 19 sort of age bracket. Um, and then after that, I sort of had me go at sort of, I guess, elite sport. Um, so I was lucky enough to be drafted in AFL uh, when I lived in Melbourne and was on an AFL list for two years and tried me luck with a team up in Queensland for two years and, and was unsuccessful. So, and then I just fell into, I guess, being a PT um, and then managing aquatic centres and recreation centres for probably the last, uh, I guess, eight years of that. Um, before deciding, um, yeah, I'd give paramedicine a go. Um, yeah, right. So it wasn't until probably 20. Yeah, so take me back to the AFL. Which which list were you on and who do you support? Yeah, so I was playing for um, uh, Benigo Bombers back then. So that was like the, the VFL affiliate uh, for Essendon at the time. Um, and I'm a Collingwood man, so had a good year last year, but it was quite tough, um, yeah, being at Bendigo when I'm a Collingwood man. <laughs> yeah, won't but, hold that um, against you, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm one of the very few that still have new teeth, so. <laughs> um, but no, yes. yeah, I guess went through went through that stage and, and then, um, yeah, went through the aquatic industry and, was in that for a while as a facility manager, um, managing multiple centres across Queensland and Melbourne. Um, 
had sort of at one stage about 80 to 100 staff underneath me that I was doing rosters for and and budgets and forecasting for and then um, I just I guess I decided um, I wanted to pursue my dreams and be a paramedic and I guess that's where where I started studying so yeah yeah okay right so what um, what prompted the the move to the paramedic profession um, I guess I was just over <laughs> um, making the money uh, for for a big business um, I guess I wasn't getting any satisfaction out of out of that and I guess I wanted to do something a little bit more um, I, I did actually apply back in 2012 um, for New South Wales ambulance back when they were doing like a internship program um, however I was unsuccessful because I never had a manual driver's license so um, I just had to stick it out with the aquatic industry at that point in time um, and I guess just kept doing that um, stuck in that kind of that job um, before I'd bite the bullet and decided to study full-time uh, in 2018 um, throughout yep. the three years of the degree and, and still work full-time as well. Um, so that was, yeah, interesting time, those three years. Mm. Um, a lot of time management, but, yeah, definitely worth the fruits at the end of it. Yeah, and, I mean, you, you're not the first person, you're not the last person that was sort of enter this sort of career because there is that barrier of having to go to uni. Um, how did you find managing your time and, and dealing with that? Yeah, it was um, it was challenging. So I guess I'd start off my day um, sort of opening this, the facility or the centre that I was working at um, at like 4.30 in the morning, 4 in the morning, uh, working for like four hours and then getting to uni for lectures and shoots around 9 through to maybe 1, 2 o'clock and then I'd do the, the last four hours of me shift um after uni um mind you like i had the luxury of being the facility manager so i could write my own roster um so that's definitely a a benefit that i had um but still having the responsibility of i guess meeting budgets and targets and and managing staff and doing rosters and all that was was definitely um made me learn how to do time management a lot better that's for sure yeah for sure um where'd you go to uni so I went to uni at what was USQ, uh, which is now UniSQ uh, in mm-hmm. Ipswich. Um, so, yeah, good uni. Loved my time there. Um, yeah, can't really say anything bad. Like, I don't know any different anyway, but um, definitely enjoyed my time there. And, and all the lecturers were, you know, happy to lend their help when they when they could, that's for sure. Yeah, right. So in terms of your three years at uni, what did you find the most challenging and what did you find the the sort of easiest in terms of your learning and and uh, development. Yeah, I guess for me, it was you know I was going back as a twenty nine year old, um, felt a bit like Billy Madison <laughs> uh, going going back to uni, you know, learning everything from scratch again, um, you know, learning what this whole APA referencing business was, and so you have to, there was lots of I guess learning curves being out of you know the school. Uh, seen for you know what 12 or 13 years um, so there was a lot of catching up to do on that front um, being dyslexic as well like I'm dyslexic so um, there was lots of challenges on that front uh, so I guess meeting them head on and just I found what really helped me was um, finding a lot of like-minded people uh, within the uni and and people that I guess complemented my flaws and 
complemented my strengths as well, uh, where we could sort of exchange information and, and sort of help each other through through the uni process. Yeah, right. And so that was the that was the challenging aspect. Was there anything that you were quite good at or like a, any of the subjects that you really enjoyed? Um, oh, I think maybe like the leadership um, subject was probably one of my favourite ones. Um, I guess it's probably not so clinical. Um, it's more abstract learning and abstract thinking um, and sort of involves, I guess, more teamwork um, aspects to it. So I found that was probably one of my, I guess, more strengths sides of things and probably one of the subjects that I enjoyed a lot more as well um, because it was a little bit more open to interpretation Um it wasn't so, you know, black and white. You could sort of explore different areas as well. So mm. thoroughly enjoyed thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, awesome. And then uh, on to your placements. Um, yeah. What were they like? Can you remember your first job or your first placement? Yeah, I can remember my first placement. Um, so I remember I was placed at a station called uh, Logan West, which was probably 100 metres from the aquatic centre that I was actually managing at the time. So <laughs> that was quite quite convenient. Um, from there, it was pretty much had some two great mentors. Um, still still in contact with them now. Um, so that, they've been fantastic throughout my development. Um, but still remember, I guess, you know, your first year student, you know, the expectation really is that you sort of only know how to do your vital signs and that's pretty much it, really. Um, so, to second job, uh, first day, cardiac arrest. Um, I still remember we were sort of working on the patient and CCP asked me if I wanted to put in an LMA, uh, which I was a bit surprised, but he still let me anyway. Um, and then we had to change from a size 5 to a size 4 um and then was I was bagging the patient in the back of the truck um on our way to hospital and I still remember uh the song that was going on over the radio as we were driving <laughs> driving into the hospital um so yeah there's a few memories um I guess that kickstarted the the career in the placement side of things um there's definitely memories that are quite I'm quite fond of um that I definitely think you know shaped my journey to the positive yeah, it's funny some of the the weird things you remember at jobs, um, yeah. And it's interesting that like everyone has different placement stories, and and you go out on placement hoping to get yeah the the big jobs to get your experience. For for my whole three year degree, I got nothing, and then the one day that they got a cardiac arrest, I was on an eight week placement and that one night I was off shift because I'd actually flown yeah. to Sydney to interview for London Ambulance and they got that one arrest. So yeah. uh my first arrest, like many, was uh when I was actually out on the road as a paramedic. Um yeah. which is a bit daunting at times, but um I'm sure we'll get get into that soon. Um yeah, but I mean you you were on another podcast, the Student Paramedic Podcast, where you talked a lot about yep. some sort of advice for university students, and we'll we'll touch a little bit on this, but we'll sort of gear it more towards graduates and actually being a good mentor. But mm. in terms of coming out on placement, what are sort of things that we would sort of be looking for or wanting out of the students that are coming out with us? Yeah, I guess the 
everything's proportionate to I think the the experience that they've had as well. So, you know, you might have some first years who you know they they might have seen a few things on on road or you have the other end of the spectrum that they haven't seen anything at all. You know, I still remember like even a, a mate in um, the cohort that I went through when he was a first year, like he hadn't experienced death in his family, even pets. Um, and then he was paired up with a CCP like for his first placement. So the the level that you kind of want to think about with, with you know, the students that are coming out is everything's proportionate to, to life experience as well as what their experience are prior. So whether it's their first placement, last placement, uh, and everything that they've done in between, everything should be proportionate to their journey. Um, just because one's a third year doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you can expect that level from them. Um, I think you need to delve a little bit deeper as, as a mentor and actually find out what it is that they've done in their past. They could even be, you know, a bit further ahead or they might be a little bit behind. And it's just, I guess, our role um, to guide them through that process um, and allow them to feel comfortable um, during that transition, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the best advice I'd, I'd give is just making sure that they've got their attitude in check first. Like, I guess that's one thing that we can kind of mould a little bit. Um, their clinical knowledge we can definitely work on um, and how they apply themselves we can work on, but they just need to have that that attitude is pretty much key. Yeah, and that's what I often say to a lot of the students coming out is that like we could crack on without the student being there. It's, it's not a massive issue and it's sort of however they want to progress with their placement and what they're comfortable at, what they want to do um, when I have students come out with me. Um, because they're, like you said, you might have someone that was like myself that went straight from university, high school to university being 21. And I mean, for me, all the elderly people in my life had died really early. So I, had, I hadn't really had much, much exposure of talking to someone that can't hear very well and, and with dementia and that sort of stuff. Whereas you might have some ex-army dudes that are very good at putting on tourniquets and really confident at talking to people and all that sort of stuff. So it's all about yep. the coming out with the right attitude and wanting to learn. And then the the mentorship part of it is, yeah, just trying to, to find out where they're at and what, what they're trying to get out of that placement. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess for the students that are, you know, listening to your podcast, um, the, the advice I'd probably give them is just have a plan of what it is that you want to get out of your placement. Now, I know most universities they would have as part of your portfolio and stuff. You've got to set goals. You've got to set, you know, all your aspirations and, you know, submit it as an assessment. But I think putting the assessment stuff aside, that, that's a tick and flick type thing that'll get done at, at university level. You've got to have something within yourself, like an intrinsic motivator of what it is that you actually want to get out of that placement. Um, so I guess be keen, uh, show up to be ready and be teachable, be adaptable, take initiative um, on some things that you might see on scene um, and just get really, really good at the basics because we see far more low acuity um, jobs than what we do high acuity. And you'll have plenty of time to work on that high acuity stuff. So get good at the basics. And if you're really good at your basics, all the harder stuff becomes a breeze. And that's that even that progresses through to the your graduate year as well. When if you can do the basics well, it it 
opens up so much more bandwidth for your, your brain to actually think on jobs because yeah. if you're too busy thinking if the blood pressure cuffs the right way around or how many ECG dots do I have and all that sort of stuff, then it makes the actual complexities of the job really hard because, I mean, every paramedic is going to look at it differently. But for me, I think a lot of like a massive, massive part of the job is history taking. And there's been studies that show that you can reach a diagnosis without a lot of the the technical aspects of the job with ECGs and all that sort of stuff when you just take a really good thorough history. Um, yep. And I think that's a really big part of forming your practice as a paramedic and you can't really do that if you if you haven't got the basics down pat. So getting the basics right during placement really puts you in good stead to then go forward into your career um, as a graduate when you start doing it every day because, I mean, yeah, you, you got the basics down and you don't really have to think about them too much. Yeah, couldn't agree more, mate. Absolutely, spot on. Um, and so when we'll bounce back into your career path, so you, you managed to get through your three years of placement um, and uh, all those written assignments and your APA referencing, chat GPT helps a little bit with me with my uh, <laughs> master's. Yeah. Um, but uh, you then got a job and um, took us through the first year out on the road. Yeah, so I guess uh, first year out on the road, so I was fortunate enough to get a job straight out of uni. Um, so I was one of the, I guess, lucky ones or fortunate ones uh, to have got a position uh, quite early on. Um, so there wasn't as much, I guess, that waiting sort of limbo period as what I feel sorry for a lot of students go through. Um, so I guess I started on the ground running. Um, I had a plan to do my postgrad um the year after i finished uh university in hindsight probably could have changed my decision um however i stuck that out and because i i guess my plan was initially what am i going to be able to show um you know state services where i was applying for how am i going to show them that i'm still continuing my learning um if i don't have a job in that year that i, I complete uni um and I guess it's a realistic thought for most students when they, you know, finish third year. How, how do I show that I'm still relevant? How do I still show that I'm current? Um, and my thought process was to go into postgrad and do that part time and show that, you know, paramedicine is where I want to be, and this is why I'm studying, um, you know, critical care in in paramedicine. So I was doing that um, as well as doing my GPIP. Um, so that was definitely <laughs> a big workload. Um, as well as working full-time hours on a twilight roster. So, and for anyone who doesn't know a twilight roster, it's pretty much all night shifts. You're doing 4 p.m. to 4 a.m., uh, pretty much four consecutive shifts on a rotating roster. Um, so doing that as well as juggling assignments part-time uh, was quite challenging. Um, and then on top of that, I guess I didn't have a quite a supportive mentor um, during that six-month six um, grad program so yeah I guess that was my grad year or grad six months as it was then um through that through that process before I become qualified yeah um did you find how were the jobs the job load and and going from university where you sort of experience your placement and you you do a little bit of the job in little blocks but then 
doing the job every day, day in, day out. What was were there any big jobs that you that you felt you could have managed better or that you that you thought you did really well at? Um, or some learning experience that came out of some of those early jobs? Oh yeah, definitely. Um there's always you know, learnings even now, like three years in, like there's still still jobs that I attend and go, Oh, I could have done this better, I could have done that better. Um and I think in the early stages, there's a lot of imposter syndrome type elements to it um, where, you know, you think you're doing something wrong, but, you know, you could pass that off as that's completely appropriate for that type of patient. So um, I guess it's just having a solid foundation and uh, believing in, in myself um, and my clinical ability during those early, early times, um, you know, We've all got a bit of paper that says that we all know the same kind of stuff, um, but it's about, I guess, the work that you're doing in with the jobs uh, that you're attending. And, you know, if there's anything with the jobs that you you don't know, you know, going back and researching and doing self-reflection on those types of cases is really important to, to progress and, and get better as a clinician. Um, so I feel by doing that, um, it's definitely put me in a better position now than, um, I guess, the early early couple of months that's for sure yeah was there anything i mean for me i came out at 21 and went straight to the uk um yeah it was always something on my bucket list to sort of live overseas and i wanted to experience that so i definitely had a lot of that imposter syndrome because sort of towards the end of uni instead of studying i was uh just watching a lot of the ambulance show on youtube for the uh London Ambulance Service, which was then actually filming us on my last year in London, which was a massive head spin. <laughs> but um, I do remember one job where one of the episodes follows this critical care paramedic or APP in London. Um, yep. And there was the episode was all uh, sort of based around following him through different jobs on, on that day. And then fast forward two years, I was in the back with a trauma job cannulating and then Hems rock up and that paramedic's there standing over me watching me cannulate, which was one of the weirdest experiences in my life. But um, <laughs> yeah, there's a you, you touched on the imposter syndrome. That's a it's a big part of it because you sort of get thrown sort of in there, and your mentor will, will watch you if they're a good mentor and that sort of stuff. But there are people that that don't want to be mentors, but but you still get put w- with a graduate, and that goes all over the world and some of them may not watch yeah. you as closely and you're sort of fumbling along thinking is it is it wrong is it right um yep. so do you have any tips on managing that um i guess biggest tips i'd have would be just because the person that you is riding in the truck with you um they don't necessarily have to be your mentor i think you can definitely although if you find a mentor that's, you know, at your station and, you know, someone that you can find in that you can, you know, talk about jobs and talk about cases and they can sort of give you feedback on what they might have thought, although they're not there, like to be able to witness firsthand what you're seeing, it's probably still better than um, not receiving any feedback at all from someone who might have been on scene that might not really care too much about your development. So, if that's the case and you're not getting too much from the person that you're riding around with, um, then seek it, seek it from somewhere else. You know, I think most state services have um, something in play that you can go and talk to someone, um, you know, whether it's a clinical educator or if you've got any questions about a particular job, um, 
you can definitely have a chat to them. And it's usually a very casual conversation that you can have um, and can be quite informative and definitely help shape the way that you um, do your practice in the future. Um, other other things that could be really good is, I guess, not have such a high standard of yourself um, and understand what, what resources you have versus your experience. So um, you've got to balance that up as well. Otherwise, you do fall into that bit of a spiral of, of low confidence and second guessing everything that you're that you're sort of thinking and all your you know provisional diagnoses you start second guessing all your management plans you start second guessing and you just end up in this spiral um, of self doubt and, and it's not a place that you want to be so definitely yeah. find someone that you can have a chat to um, debrief um, and get all that off your chest and off off your brain yeah some good points there so in terms of your mentorship like. I'm six years out and I've done a postgrad and applying for the, the critical care programs when they when they come out and all that sort of stuff. But I've got a mentor and he probably gets annoyed by the amount of questions that I ask him and ECGs that I show him. Um, but you, you'll see these people when you start out on the road, you'll see the paramedics that you want to emulate. You like the way they do things and the way they talk to patients. And yeah. if if they're the type of person that, normally the the really good ones are more than happy to to mentor if i mean that's if i've found in my experience yeah. um and it's not even about sort of asking will you be my mentor it's just uh, having those yeah casual conversations and then they just develop more from there and just someone that you can bounce ideas off and and that sort of stuff and it's i think it's yeah it's a massive important part of it um and then the second thing you touched on there was was striking that balance of not getting to self-doubt in that sort of big spiral because you need to sort of st- strike that happy medium where you're not overconfident and you reckon you've got it all covered because personally I don't think that you are even a competent paramedic until you're at least probably three years out on the road and that's, again, depending on area. Like if you're at an 8-6 station where you do eight days on and you see three patients a week compared to someone that's in a metro area, yeah. Um, some people may, it's, and unfortunately with the, the world of being a paramedic, it's all volume based. Like you can, we all, as you said, or we all come out with the same knowledge, the same piece of paper, depending on which different uni stamps it, but yeah. y- you need to have that experience and that um, you need to be able to work out what's going on and, and speak to different people. And that's why, I mean, I had such a good experience in London because there was just, and a, a huge amount of jobs and a huge diverse population to treat and talk to and try and navigate. And as the 21 year old where you're bouncing between mentors and then after six months, you're with a technician that's three months in a classroom and then out with you, it's just yeah. a massive sink or swim and you develop quite quickly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all about striking that balance of not being too down in yourself and just being a safe clinician. And I think the the safe clinician is, where you want to be to start off with and then you start trying to develop from there yeah absolutely and i think that's the advice that i give to any any grads that come out um as soon as i get started like it's it's fine just when you're on on your job um talk out loud with your mentor or or who's who's looking after you um even if it's in front of the patient like you know you can just say to the patient do you mind i'm just going to have a chat to you chat about you for a moment um like they're, they're not going to mind if you know you're trying to help them um 
talk, talk about what the patient's history taking is like, what your assessment findings are, and discuss different differentials and potential management plans and extrication plans with your mentor. Um, talk it out loud so that they know how, how the cogs are spinning in, in your head and, and what your thought process is like because then they can help shape you um, if, if that's what's needed. If not, if everything's sound, then they'll say, yeah, good job, yeah, it sounds great. And that'll just feed into your confidence and help get you get you up and have more confidence in you know your thought processes and what you're actually trying to achieve. Um, and just remember, sometimes you know two jobs are never going to be run the same. So, and that's even by the different clinicians. So, what one clinician might do for one case, you know, another clinician might see a different way of managing that. Um, and both are probably correct. Um, so, there's multiple ways to skin a cat, as they all say. Um, and same with jobs. Sometimes there's multiple ways to run a particular job. Sometimes people just like it done in a particular way that suits them. Um, and that's that's just the the way it is sometimes. So if your mentor's very, you know, gun shy on, you know, this is how things need to be done, then that might be the way they do it. Um, but you know, you can have your own twists on how you like to do things as well. Yeah, massive for sure. Like you said, there's you could go to one job and 10 paramedics to do it 10 different ways. Um, yep. And I guess that brings me to the the next point, which is sort of around how do you sort of bounce back from making mistakes and, and making those minor errors when you start off in the job because you do and you constantly do. And you, if you don't get humbled in the job at least a couple of times a year, then I don't think you're doing it right. Um, yeah. How do you manage those sort of situations? And I think it's that's just natural, like that whole um, Dunning Kruger effect. I think they call it the you know the Mount Stupid, where you think you're all over it, and then you know something goes wrong, and then you soon find out that you're not all that in a bag of chips. So um, <laughs> you know it, it happens. Um, I think it's just how you respond to those cases um, and how how high your mountain really is because um, you don't want it to be too high uh, when you do fall. So I guess the best way to go about it is having a chat um, to, to the clinician that you're with. You know, if you're not in a rural setting where you're a sole responder and, and you do have a partner with you, you know, two brains are better than one on the truck. So always discuss your, your thoughts and your plans because they might find something that you might just be missing. Um, and, and that's fine. Thing, things like that happen. Cognitive overload occurs. So find your partner um, and have a chat to them and have a discussion about how you're both going to manage the patient. I guess for me, like whether I've got a grad or whether I don't, I look at it as, as we're both treating the patient. It's just that you're doing the paperwork if you're primary. Um, mm-hmm. so, and that should really be the only, the only thing that is different is that one person's doing the paperwork and the other one's not. Everything else on the job should be, you know, everyone's doing what they can for the patient. Yeah. Um, and then sort of dealing with it after and my partner, she's just finished her grad years and midwife and she was yeah. quite hard on herself coming home from work and saying, oh, I didn't do this well and I didn't do that well. And yeah. at the end of the day, the, the things that I said to her is, did any patient harm come out of that or or anything like that did you do anything that could have caused patient harm and the answer was always no because she was a safe clinician and if that's the answer well then no it's not the end of the world and it's just a learning experience because 
as we said, there's 10 ways to skin a cat and you're not going to get it right the first couple of times. But as long as you can learn from that and, and grow and continue to develop um, and acknowledge what didn't go so well so that you don't do it yep. the next time or that you can acknowledge that, oh, this is what happened when I did this, so maybe I'll, I'll do it this way, um, yep. I think is a massive part of, of your grad year. Yeah, definitely. If you're, if you're the type that's going to try and sweep things under the rug, then you, you're never going to improve. Um, the only way to, to get better is by tackling those mistakes or little errors head on and reviewing the, the gaps in your knowledge um, so that you don't have as many gaps and you know, you're not going to be falling through them cracks as much and as often. Um, mm-hmm. It's really the only way to smooth it over uh, so that you're a nice, sound, safe clinician. Yeah. And so we'll launch back into your career. So you've you finished yep. your grad year, and at what point did you start the Instagram page? And talk us through that. Yeah, um, so I think I actually started twenty eighteen, pretty much when I um, got the position, um, and I pretty much did it more out of uh, self accountability <laughs> more than anything. <laughs> um, I found that you know at least if I had some accountability on myself um, to, you know, do some research and do do all this stuff that, you know, universities are so good at, you know, structuring things up for you um, and having everything out on a bit of a platter for you to just consume. Um, I did it more out of a fact of, yeah, trying to keep myself accountable and keep myself active and, and studying. Um, and then I guess it just turned into something that, I was able to mentor and guide um, others through a similar process. Um, and I guess at uni when I was there, um, I enjoyed mentoring um, other cohorts that were coming coming through underneath me. Um, I enjoyed the practical elements of it um, as well as, you know, the theory and everything else in between. Um, loved exploring the grey within paramedicine and trying to, have people learn their own clinical reasoning um, and what that looks like for them. So um, for that purpose, I guess it's just turned into what it is now. And um, I guess I don't post as many posts because I don't, I'm not that tax, like tech savvy with all the, <laughs> the posts and TikToks and stuff like that. Um, I've also got a 13-month-old that probably doesn't really allow me that much time either. So, <laughs> um, Trying to make I some just, cat cut videos while dealing with the 13. Yeah, 13 that's all. it. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it's more it's more just the Q&As and, if, you know, like, I'll probably get more stuff in my DMs and, than what I do anything else. So um, as long as I can help help someone, if anyone ever has anything on their mind, they can shoot it to me and we'll have a bit of a conversation and see if we can nut it out. But um yeah i guess that's what it's turned into now yeah it's like you said if you i think it's a really good platform for someone that yeah if you're as a grad and you may not be with the type of mentor that you're hoping to be that there's someone out there that's more than happy to answer your questions and there's there's heaps of stuff going on on your page so um that might even just kick start the conversation to help them get to the next stage of of what they need yeah that's it and i think there's a bit of a a gap um, somewhere within, you know, some services or, um, and it's not just one service, there's probably multiple. Uh, there's just a gap in that connection between, I guess, coming out from university and then, you know, being a grad um, and just what that looks like and, and how, I guess, at university we're taught 
all the skills and all the knowledge for, to be a paramedic, but then we're not taught how to actually be a mentor and and um, there's no subjects for that on, on how to be a good mentor and how to mentor people coming through and what that looks like. So I guess there's a little bit of a gap um, in the market, I guess, um, to try and help fill, um, and I guess I'm trying to help fill that that space um, best I can. Yeah, so... We'll talk through the uh, the mentorship side of things. So a student comes out with you or a, a new grad and um, I think we touched on it sort of a bit earlier about trying to work out where they are, what sort of life experience yep. they have and sort of develop from there. What what do you do that make, that you would say would, would make you a good mentor? Um, I guess against what most people might think but i guess allowing them to <laughs> make make um mistakes um mistakes are good <laughs> just not big ones that compromise patient safety mm. um you know like the the little mistakes are, are good it's it's shows where you know there's holes in your knowledge or where um you can work on i guess defaults um improve your default settings so you know if you've have your patient history taking and you've got a script that you know in your head but there's a couple of holes missing you know what your default setting is then so and it's just up to you to try and fill in those gaps and get them up to speed um so just allowing them to make mistakes allowing them to learn at their own pace um if if you yeah that that's ultimately my philosophy is is that um if i can allow them to be comfortable enough to do that and you know, they're not going to get hit over the knuckles or that kind of mentality. Um, it's just, that just ruins their confidence. Then we end up going into that spiral that I started talking about earlier. So I think that's probably one of the biggest ones uh, that I allow. Um, and then just coaching through that process um, and then encouraging that self-reflection in order to be able to work on work on those areas that they've self-identified. Um, yeah, massively. Yeah. And I think, I think, what goes hand in hand with that is first of all as a mentor being confident in your own practice because if you're not confident in your own abilities and your own assessment of the job then how are you then able to allow a grad to sort of crack on and and make those mistakes that you're then going to need to pick up on Um, and often you'll see I mean from my experience you've seen when when there's jobs out there that people are stressed and people are talking to each other in probably a way that they'd probably would rather take back if given a second chance. It normally comes from a place of, of stress and anxiety because they're not themselves in control of the situation. Um, yep. So I would think it's very hard to be a good mentor yourself if, first of all, you, you don't, you, you're not sound and confident in your own practice to then allow someone else to go and have a crack. Um, yeah, that's- I guess that comes back to like, don't try and bluff your way through as well. Like, if you've mm. got a, a mentee that's asking you questions and you don't know the answer to it, don't try and just make up some kind of response that makes you look smart when you don't know the answer. Just admit it. Um, admit, hey, don't actually know the answer to that. Let's let's go and find out together. Like mm. simple things like that actually build that rapport with your partner. And they will actually trust maybe later on down the track when you actually do tell them to do something because they need to do it because it will compromise patient safety. They're probably actually going to listen to you more likely as well and probably do it a lot quicker as well. So mm. 
having that, I guess, a bit of, you know, humble pie <laughs> and just swallowing your pride and getting rid of your ego um, definitely goes a long way in just having having a good mentee. Um, and then they actually make it less stressful for you down the track because they're actually going to come to you when they've got problems. They're not going to be trying to hide things or, or be a bit sheepish around you and, and you don't know where they're at. So just little things like that really do add up in the long run. Mm. I think the the other thing that I also think is a massive massive part of it is acknowledging how uncomfortable you can feel as a graduate because mm. you're coming into a new environment wearing a new uniform that hasn't been washed that many times yet. You're sitting in an ambulance going to jobs. I mean, it, we, I was lucky in the UK we had a really good driving course. Over here in Australia, not so much. Um, and I mean, even stuff like that, there's just so much going on that you're, you're so uncomfortable in so many different situations. And as a mentor, yep. I think it's my job to try and make them feel as comfortable as possible, at least with me so that yeah. they know that, all right, Nick's chill. He will let me do what I need to do. And if he needs to step in, he will. Um, and he's not going to talk to me yeah. like a piece of shit. He's not going to start yelling at me for no reason. Like, I'll let you crack on, and if I need to step in, then I'll, I'll do it in in a manner that needs to be done, um, and not start getting stressed and, and losing my mind over it. Because at the end of the day, you just take it back to your A, B, and C. If they've got an airway, they're breathing, and they've got a pulse, life's not so bad. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And I think um, when you're a grad, you come in, you think sometimes you don't have as much time as what you actually do. Um, so taking that time to just step back a little bit, assess what's going on and then making the appropriate discussions with your partner and going, hey, this is what I think I hear. This is what, you know, I'm auscultating. This is what I think I hear. Um, this is what the numbers are. You know, this is what I'm thinking for management because of their history. Um, you know, having all of that worked out and deciphered to your partner just goes a long way in just making the, the dream work essentially. Yeah, and I, that's a such a massive thing is that one of my favorite sayings is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And I've said that to my grad that I had on, I think it was the second episode, Simon. He, there was a few jobs that we did that was an arrest and I could see his sand literally shaking over the airway as he was trying to get an, an airway in and a story I have from one of those jobs is where we was we were three up on a night shift. It was me and him, and then another paramedic that was two years Jeez, in the job. Nice, three up on a night shift. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, not not all in the truck, small station, so we responded in two ambulances. Um, but it was a, yeah. a hanging job, um, and the patient was in arrest. QPS had, had cut it down yeah. by the time we got there, and. We had to crack on and there was only three of us there, but I stepped into that role of, and this is another thing that I have is that whenever you do an arrest scenario, it always seems that the leader puts themselves on the airway, which is normally sort of where the most experienced clinician goes when you're sort of talking about putting in tubes and that sort of stuff. But for me, I try and reduce my cognitive load as much as possible. So I jump straight on the chest. Um, and from there, I was able to sort of dictate what needed to happen so I could ask my airway paramedic how they're going and that happened to be my grad and he was having a lot of issues with the the trauma that was around the neck. Um, mm. And I said to him, just relax, take a breath, 
try and think your way through this. Is there is there an issue? Um, so then he he was having issues. So then I was able to then take over. Um, and the job, this job ran for something that was as horrendous as it was. It ran so smoothly that we we got Rosk pretty quickly. We got it extricated to hospital. And this is the difference where there was such a juxtaposition of us being all calm and collected on scene and doing what we needed to do to then getting to hospital and the nurses were screaming at each other and everyone was stressed <laughs> and they were, everyone was losing their mind and it was just from one minute yeah. everyone relaxed in an ambulance from what was a really horrendous job and we were doing a really good job and then yeah. everyone just being stressed in an unknown situation. Um, yeah. Which then just makes everyone uncomfortable and the team not work as well as it possibly could. That's right. Yeah, 100%. Goes um, Yeah, but I mean that takes you yeah, back to the, the point that I was making, which was uh, the, the slow is smooth and smooth is fast and just take a minute to, to think about what needs to happen and, and do it. Yeah. Um, because like you said, you, you have a lot more time than, than you think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Might have to use that saying. That's a, that's a gem. That's a gem. Might even have to use it for my haircut, maybe. <laughs> um, and so, what what else do you think makes a good mentor? Um, it's. I think you don't need to overcomplicate it. I really do think it's like the effort that you're going to put into your grade is what you're going to get out of them. Um, if you're not putting much effort into the grad, then they're not going to grow. You know, I could use analogies about plants and stuff, but I won't go into that. <laughs> um, it, it really is, you know, if you put an effort into them, they'll grow and they'll, I guess, speed up a lot quicker than what, you, what you're hoping. So um, do the basics well. Allow them to make mistakes. Mistakes aren't bad. It's how we grow. Um, you know, no one ever consistently succeeded their way to success multiple people fail their way to success. So um, I think just keeping that in mind is, is definitely going to help help you be a good mentor. Um, yeah. And I think acknowledging that it's not all sunshine and rainbows when you're a mentor because some grads are really good, some grads might need a bit more work than others and it yeah. can be quite a lot when you're on scene where you're trying to get an ECG and they're not able to do that who knows why but they they can't at that stage and you're trying to do that you're trying to organize extrication the dutch hound's trying to rip your leg off at the same time and grandma's still on the floor like yes it 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 can become quite a lot quite quickly and that sort of goes back to being confident in your own practice and just having the ability to like we said before is knowing that you have more time than than what you do normally so just think your way through what needs to happen and try not to it's and, and like we said, it's all about attitude and attitude from the graduate, but then also attitude from you as your mentor. Yeah, so I know what you mean, man. Like, you might have, like, this really green-as grad, right? Like, 
maybe first week, second week, and you do go to that really big job. Um, like it's just key, and you, you're there, and you're you're having to decipher, you know, what you're going to do, what what they're going to do, what skills they're actually able to achieve, um, and fit in with what you know you need to do for the patient. Um, it can be high stress. Um, I guess what you need to think about is the bigger picture within that. Yes, you've got a patient that you need to provide, you know, A plus care, care to, um, and you've got to balance like I said earlier, that the resources that you have versus the expectations, you, you just need to weigh those two things up. Um, would you have the same expectations if you were a single on that scene? You know, you need to balance all those things up. So, and at the end of it, at the end of that job, like what learnings can you take out of that to then pass on to the grad? You know, get their input, get their feedback. It's, you know, how were they feeling in those moments? Did they feel that they were a bit, you know, were they freeze? Were they, you know, run? Like what, what kind of feelings were they having in that moment as well? And then it's about just working with them um, and trying to get them up to speed so that, you know, the next time you go to one of those big jobs, because we all know we don't know when that's going to be, um, you need to have them prepared and ready for it. Yeah, and that's the just the massive thing is just debriefing and saying that, yeah, that I was stressed as that because that happens because at the end of the day yeah. like we're only human um and we have have emotions and we may not have slept well and we haven't had a coffee or whatever and then we get this massive job put on us um and just debriefing afterwards and acknowledging how you both feel and having a chat and building that better understanding of each other because then when you rock up to the next job you have a better understanding and it's amazing i haven't experienced up until recently where you get in such a flow state with another partner where you've, if you've worked with them for quite a, for a, yeah. a bit of an extended period of time, I think we were together for eight months. It was like yeah. a marriage ending when we got split. Um, <laughs> but it was yeah. like just everything was just so intuitive. Like you knew what was, where the equipment was, what was going where, where you were getting coffee in the morning. Like yeah. it you all just. You need to talk when you're on scene. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a really good experience to have. Um, and if you don't have those debriefs and you don't have those those conversations with each other, then you, you won't get to that, that state. And then at the end of the day, we're here to, to provide good care for our patients. And I feel like when you work well with the team, that's that's how you provide good care. And if you're not a cohesive team, then uh, you're not providing the best care that you could. Yeah, that's when cracks appear, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what's on the what's on the cards for the next short while for yourself? You mentioned yeah. your, your, your post-grad. Have you finished that or you towards the end? Yeah, so I'm – so what did I do? So I, 2021, I started my post-grad. So I completed the grad cert uh, component um, and then I took a gap year in 2022 uh, just to consolidate everything that I'd learnt because on reflection, pretty much everything that I submitted would have just been, you know, everything was assessment task focused. Um, a lot of the stuff I didn't, you know, I'd watch the lectures, but I never absorbed most of it. So 2022 was a year of just going back and looking at the lecture content and actually absorbing it and understanding it um, and not just submitting assessments. Um, I think that's a... Yeah, that's a really important point you you touch on because I am now doing that because I've 
didn't have that reflective year. I just smashed it out in the two years. And yeah. it's amazing how much you forget because, yeah, you, it, there's a difference between studying for your assessments and studying for your job, I feel. Um, and most of what I was doing was studying for assessments. So a yep. lot of that is now dissipated from my brain. Um, yeah. <laughs> and when those those programs start opening up for applications and stuff again, I've got to go back. And, I mean, I've, for me, I felt like the postgrad taught me a lot about what I don't know again. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's the thing. Like you, you do the postgrad, you do the assignments, and then it's like I know – shitload about this one thing <laughs> uh, you know you do your assessment you absolutely nail it you get d's hd's you know whatever it is but then you've you've got a whole year worth of lecture content there that you you need to have absorbed as well mm. so you know it's all well and good having these good grades and having a certificate at the end of it but you need to know the content that's within it that's taught within it um and i guess that's you know just one of those things that you you need to be comfortable with, you know, are you comfortable with not having the knowledge, but the bit of paper, um, you know, I don't think it's a good look, but everyone each to their own. Um, so yeah, I guess that's what I did. I had that gap year to fill in some knowledge, knowledge gaps. And then, um, last year done the, uh, postgrad dip, uh, like half of it. Cause I just went mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, two subjects a semester, um and yeah done that and now i'm having another gap year between the um the skills and the skills components so um yeah and then i'll do the masters maybe you know masters component later on down the track um whenever that'll be <laughs> yeah future glenn problems that's right future glenn problems. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah. yeah that's pretty much what's on, on my horizons but in the short term, I guess I've got um, like I'm doing a. I've been training for Everest Base Camp, so I'm doing a, I guess a CBD um, event through Explorer Medical. Um, so they're doing like a, you know, track up to Everest Base Camp, learning all altitude sickness stuff, and um, which will be really good, uh, really informative. Doing that with a few mates and and a good CCP friend of mine who's I guess part of that um, CBD group. So. Um, yeah, it'll be really good, really good experience. Yeah, that'll be awesome. How long's that trip? Yeah, so we leave on the 3rd of March um, and then we finish up around the 22nd of March. So I think it's a eight-day hike up to base camp and then I think it's five or six-day trek down um, and I think we stop in at like an altitude hospital um, on the mountain and start learning some stuff at like their ED and, and stuff like that as well. So that would be pretty cool to see see what they do um, and how they treat people. So, um, yeah, looking forward to um, learning something new. Yeah. Did you – have you got an interest in altitude? Because you can do – there's a few different ones that you can do with them because I'm pretty sure you can do diving and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do uh, provide some pretty good CBDs. Um I do have an interest in the diving one because I would like to have me diving cert as well. Um, so I think that's part of their package. But um, at the moment, just the Everest one. Um, I've got me leave uh, scheduled out for pretty much most of their CPDs this year. But um, I'll just sort of take it one by one at a time and balance that with family life and, and everything else. But, yeah, that's, I guess, something exciting on the cards in the next couple of days. 
Yeah, awesome. Um, and what I mean, to finish, oh, so I mean, I just got back from Japan this morning, so um, very full on 13 days there, snowboarding and um, experiencing the culture and eating a lot of ramen. Um, <laughs> and uh, between then and now, uh, for finishing that, I'm now going to Europe for two months in mid May, so um, I've knocked out my master, my post grad in the last two years. So traveling yeah. is a big, big thing for me. And I mean, lived yeah. over in the UK for the best part of three years and missed it during COVID and that sort of stuff. Ah, um, got oof. to spend some uh, time in hotel quarantine. Um, <laughs> so I'm super keen to get back to traveling and, and doing that sort of stuff. So we'll uh, yeah, be back in Europe mid-May. So a lot of overtime being worked and sort of a lot of code one career stuff between then and leaving um and i think yeah. i got four kilos to shed off from uh eating too much ramen before the uh <laughs> europe trip I, so a bit of euro shred going on that's all right it's all just water weight it's all good yeah exactly <laughs> um well thanks very much for coming on mate it was an awesome chat um and hopefully some people get a, a lot out of this i think um we put our two brains together and uh came up some with some informative content that's it collaborative work makes the dream work mate Thanks for for inviting me on. Thanks, mate. Um, Good luck at Everest. (laughs) Yeah, I'll need it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, team, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Code One Careers podcast. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, we are always open to feedback in the DMs. Now, if you or anyone you know is wanting to join a frontline career and is seeking some advice on how to prepare, then head over to our website at codeonecareers.com and book a free consult with me and we'll have a chat on how I can best help you. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.